morning, everybody. We'd like to invite our children to Children's Church. There's the migration. And uh, as they're going, let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, what a wonderful set of songs we sang about you and how majestic and wonderful it is to be your people and to experience your love. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for that reminder. Lord, we want to praise you and thank you, especially this week in, um, in America. Um, Roe versus Wade has been overturned. And Lord, that was something I didn't think I would ever see. I, I didn't think in my lifetime it would happen. But Lord, by your grace, that has come about. And so, Lord, we thank you. We praise you for um, the chance to begin the end of the slaughter of the innocents. And we pray that, um, that this is not seen as the end goal, the victory that we were aiming for. Lord, there's still so much more work to be done as now it's up to the local states. And here, Lord, in California, our governor and, and our legislature in California has pledged to make California a safe haven uh, for abortion. And so, Lord, we have, uh, as, as Christians and, and anti-abortion people in in California, we have a lot of work ahead of us. So, Lord, for that to that end, I want to pray for our local crisis pregnancy center, CareNet. Uh, Lord, we have seen other crisis pregnancy centers around the country being vandalized, some firebombed. So, we pray your protection on CareNet. We pray that you would watch over them and uh, keep their facility and their people safe. And Lord, we pray that you would multiply and extend their ministry; that they would be helping. Uh, women make a, a decision about their uh, children, but then continue on with them and help them and support them in, in the uh, aftercare as well. So Lord, would you bless that, that work that they're doing and, and multiply them, bring them the volunteers and the resources they need to continue that. And uh, Lord, we just, again, ask your protection on that facility and the, the people, the volunteers there. Father, we also want to lift up Jessica, Steve Carranza's uh, cousin, who uh, recently lost her husband. And Lord, what a tremendous, um, life-shattering difference that's gonna make. So Lord, would you be with her? I thank you for the people who have supported her so far, and, and I pray that she would find support in her friends and her family. Lord, that the church would respond well to her needs and, uh, and support her in this difficult time. Um, have mercy on her and her family, we pray. Now, Lord, would you be with us as we turn to your word, as we, we come to understand this, this closing up of uh, First uh, Peter, this this last home stretch, um, Lord, I think this is really important. And so, Holy Spirit, would you bring it to roost in our hearts and our minds? Uh, please be with us now. We ask in Christ's name, Amen. So, I am really loath to use myself as a sermon illustration very often, probably because I'm very boring. Um, my remember two weeks ago, I did my Air Force career, and it was a very technical, nerdy kind of thing. That's kind of me, and that just doesn't make for good illustrations, I don't think. But this week, I have to do it again. Um, this, the coup de grace in all this is I'm not the hero. <laughs> so it's not like me promoting myself up here. Uh, my, my illustration a couple weeks ago was the Air Force career. This one is from my Whole Foods career when I was working at Whole Foods Market. Um, one of my jobs there, the one that I had toward the end and, and was probably the most significant and contributed most to the gray hair, was what's called a POS analyst. That's a point of sale. I supported the cash register systems. And so uh, early in my career as a POS analyst, we had to do all the changes ourselves, manually, one store at a time. 
So to do that, you, you had to do something called an ECC. Engineers know what that is. It's an engineering or equipment change control. It's a document. You say, we're going to make this kind of change. We're going to do it on this date. We're going to reboot, reboot this server, this computer system. And you had to go and submit that ahead of time, get it approved by a control review board. And then once that was approved, then we could go and do it. It was kind of a big deal, but it was a way to make sure that we understood what was going on within the company. So I had a change coming up, and I did the ECC, and I submitted it, and got it approved, and it was time to do it. Now, at the time, we had, I was in, uh, uh, overseeing 37 stores in five states and two countries. So it was kind of a big task. And I had to go to each store individually and do the change. Um, not physically, but I would log into my computer. So this one time, 9 o'clock at night, I sit down at the kitchen table, open up my computer, and log into one of the stores in Michigan. Now, I did that because at 10 o'clock, the stores closed. It was 10 o'clock local. Michigan was on Eastern time. We were on Central. So at 9 o'clock, I could, I could log in and watch what was going on. So I watched the store close. I see people start signing out of cash registers. I watched the, the, um, the chief cashier do what's called cash up, where they reconcile the drawers and, and run some reports and everything. And then I see them log out. And I know it's clear. Time to start working. So I've got a long list of steps that I've got to do on this service. And I'm going through, and I do all the steps, and hit a button and reboot the computer. Go on to the next one. 37 stores manually over and over again. I think I finished around 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. I had to get up at 4 so I could get on the train at 5 so I could be at work at 7.30 because if anything went wrong, <laughs> I needed to be there. So I finish everything up, sign out, go to bed, close my eyes. And I must have been asleep for maybe 10 minutes, and it hit me. I forgot a step. There was an additional change that we tacked on at the end that I forgot to do. And at first, I thought, well, I'll just go back and do it. No, I can't. I won't be able to do the whole region before the stores open in the morning. It took me too many hours to do that. It'll take forever. And so I was like, OK, well, I'll, I'll deal with it later. And I couldn't sleep. My mind starts racing and starts rushing. And I'm thinking, I did this ECC, and I presented it to the board, and now I didn't do what it said. And how come I didn't do it? And when I get to work, they're going to be mad at me, and I'm probably going to get fired. And, and I just started spinning myself up and up and up. And I woke up, and I couldn't sleep. My heart was racing. I was just gripped with fear. I'm going to get fired. I didn't do what I was supposed to do, and I'm going to get fired for it. And no matter what I did, I couldn't calm myself down. So I got up, and I went into the bathroom, and I started praying. And I grabbed the sink, and I'm just praying, Lord, help. I don't know what to do. I'm really messed up. And a verse came to mind, cast your anxieties on him. And I was like, I have a ton of anxieties right now. So I went and grabbed my Bible, and I looked up the verse, and it was what we're going to look at today. And so I stood in the bathroom, looking myself in the mirror, and saying that verse over and over again. Humble yourself under his mighty right arm, because he cares for you. And I kept asking myself, do you believe that, Tim? Is that true? Is his arm mighty? Does he care for me? Can I humble myself? And it took probably an hour worth of repeating that and going over and over again when I could feel my anxiety began to subside. It's like, okay, I'm going to get fired, and it's okay because God's arm is mighty. Didn't get any sleep. Got in the shower, packed up, got on the train. When I was on the train, I, I opened up my laptop, and I started checking all the stores to make sure everything came up because there's one thing about retail. They really like to make money. And you can't do that if the cash registers are broke. 
And so I wanted to make sure all of it, okay, everything's up. I just didn't add this one little thing that we, we added on at the end. I didn't do it. So I got to work and I sat down and put my stuff down and I was going towards my boss's office and she's standing in the door. Kathleen was a little taller than me and she kind of, it felt like at the time that she filled the door, but she's very slight, so I'm sure she didn't. And I came up and she goes, so how did the update go last night? And I was like, oh, here it comes. So can we talk? <laughs> so we sat down in her office and she said, what's going on? I said, well, I forgot this one part. She goes, are the stores okay? The, the cash registers are going to work? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, okay, do the paperwork and do it again next time. Uh, what? <laughs> I didn't get fired. I didn't have to figure out how to get home without a cell phone or anything. I, was, I just, she was just really cool about it. Now I tell you that story not because I'm such a, a man of faith that I was, you know, the, the one who changed her mind by believing this promise of God. I'm the fool who had wound myself up so bad, I couldn't believe it. What was powerful in this was I was looking to God's promise from his word and saying, this is what's true. My feelings are actually happening to me. I am really about to barf. But what's true is what it says in the scriptures. And that's what I had to remind myself over and over and over again. The stress was driving me nuts. The truth is in God's word. And so I brought that up because we're going to look at this now. And I really think that this last portion that Judy read for us this morning is kind of the central thought of Peter's message. He, he's going to show us why we have hope in the dispersion. And it's not because life is easy. It's because of something even grander. So right at the beginning, he's, he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves. That should sound familiar. Last week, he ended with that promise, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, in that context, he was talking about humility amongst each other. Close yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now he turns and he says, well, how are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to humble ourselves with each other? Well, you humble, all of us humble ourselves to somebody greater. And so he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty right hand of God. Now, when I mentioned it last week, I said my definition of humility is, is agreeing with God with who, he, who we are before him. Um, there's a little bit more to be said about that. Um, there's a, a saying that is often attributed to C.S. Lewis, but it wasn't C.S. Lewis. It was actually Rick Warren from his book, The Purpose Driven Life. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Humility is thinking more of others. Humble people are so focused on serving others, they don't think of themselves. So that was Rick Warren, not C.S. Lewis. It did sound kind of C.S. Lewis-y though, didn't it? So the description's not bad. I don't think it's a bad description. The problem is it's focused on others and it's focused on us. So there's maybe another way to talk about humility. John Piper this morning had a post and he says, um, in an article for Christianity Today in 2008, Tim Keller said, humility is so shy, if you begin to talk about it, it leaves. And so Piper said, well, that's not exactly right, and he, he, but he qualifies it. This is how he explains it. He says, what I think Tim Keller is trying to communicate is this. Humility, humility flourishes in the human soul when we are standing in front of a window that looks onto the Himalayas of Christ's grandeur. 
And Christian humility vanishes when we close the window and stand in front of a mirror trying to see the authenticity of our humility. It flourishes when we are looking away from it to Christ, and it hides when we're looking directly at it. So that's, I think, what he's, he's trying to nuance it. Did you, did you get what he's saying? You, you want to be humble? Don't look in a mirror and say, am I being humble? You'll never be humble that way. Because who's at the center of that? Me. If you want to be humble, what you do is you throw the windows open and you look outward at the grandeur of Jesus Christ. You say, this is who God is. And that makes you humble. We talked about this morning in Sunday school, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of a number of great things, including humility. You say, God is much bigger, much more grand than I am. Jesus is more than who I think I am. And I think where Piper is getting that is from verses like 1 Peter. This was a book that he preached a couple of times, and he loved this book. So I think that's, that's where he gets this idea is what, what Peter tells us here. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. God's hand is mighty. Look away from yourself. Look to God. See how powerful God is. That will bring you humility. So humble yourself in that way. Focus your hum- humility Godward, not me-word. You'll never be humble that way. So I think it still works with my definition, too, agreeing with God and who we are in front of him. Because who's at the center of that equation? God. He's defined us. He's created us. He's put us there. So I think, I think my definition still works. I'm going to stick with it. So you're going to get sick of hearing it because I'm going to keep bringing it up. So we are to humble ourselves under God's mighty right arm. His arm is not short. His arm is not powerless. He is sovereign. He is able to maintain us, strengthen us, hold us. So how can we have hope in this dispersion? How can we have hope being cast among the nations, being exiles and strangers? Because we look to God and we say, his arm is mighty to save. He's there for all of us. Humble yourself under that mighty right arm. Why? So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. So at the proper time, he may exalt you. Not you will exalt yourself, not those around you will exalt you. This is humility before God. At the proper time, he will exalt you. Peter has been telling us what the proper time is. Um, it's, it's not really stated here. It could be any time, but I think he's been hinting at it. So in chapter 4, verse 13, you all may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is to be revealed. Beginning of this chapter, be a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. So when will we be exalted? When God's glory is revealed. We will be partaking in that. We will rejoice in that. We will delight in it. That's when we will be exalted. And and who is the star of that show when his glory is revealed? It's not us. It's Jesus Christ comes in his glory with his angels, with a shout, with a blast of a trumpet, accompanied by his saints. And we rejoice in that because we see the glory that should be. So at the proper time, once we've humbled ourselves under God's mighty right arm, at the proper time when Jesus returns, we rejoice. We are glad. We are, we are lifted up. And that's why he had said earlier, uh, Peter said in, in chapter 4, uh, for now is the time of judgment to begin in the household of God. That, that's, he's working to refine us, to purify us, to strengthen us, to get us ready for that re- revealing of glory. We're not there yet. When it's the proper time, when it's the right approach, when it's the day has come, then we will be exalted. 
If we were exalted now before we're ready, I fear. <laughs> we might be really conceited if we did that. Look how great we are. We have to get to the point. That's why judgment starts with the household of God. We have to get to that point where we go, it's about you, Lord. That's humility. That's true humility. So how do we get there then? Okay, so we're going to humble ourselves. We've got this promise that he is going to exalt us at the right time. How on earth can we do that as we are in the exile, as we are in the dispersion, as we're cast among the nations? How can we do that? Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him. There's a lot of truth packed into this. He is not triumphal. He is very realistic. You will have anxieties. Even as you humble yourself under God's mighty right arm, even as you await that day when his glory will be revealed, you will have anxieties. It, it's not a lie. It's not something that should be unexpected. He's been telling us through this whole letter, when you're oppressed, when you're opposed, when you're insulted, when you share in the sufferings of Christ, you will have anxieties. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do with these anxieties? Cast all your anxieties on him. Throw them at God. What does that look like? <laughs> how do we, I mean, really, how do you do that? How, you, you don't have a bag marked anxieties and you throw them at God. You, what you have to do is you have to remember, like I did by God's grace, the promise that he has made here. So that you can cast your anxieties on him. You can look at him and go, that arm under which I am covered, that arm is mighty and powerful. Whatever anxieties are coming my way, whatever opposition is coming my way, whatever uh, uh, trouble is coming my way, it has made it past that arm that is all powerful. Nothing gets past him. So you can cast your anxieties on him by looking to him and by remembering who he is, by trusting in those promises. Now, I think Peter gets this phrase from uh, Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. That's how you cast your anxieties on him. That's how you throw them at him. You do it through prayer, through Bible memorization. You need to have verses in your head. I just had a couple of words, cast your anxieties on him. I have verse 7 in my head. I didn't know what that meant. I had to go look it up in the Bible, but I had it. When I needed it, it was there. This is why Bible memorization is really helpful. Memorize these great and precious promises. Have them handy because you never know when the one that you need is just going to pop into your head. It is a tremendous blessing. And you do that. You, you have those things memorized. You have them ready. You call on God and you pray. I stood gripping the, the vanity in the bathroom praying like a madman because I, I was filled with anxieties. I had to look to him and call out to him. So prayer is something that you should be practicing. You should have ready. It should be an available thing that, that when you have problems, the first reaction you have is prayer. I say that to my own shame because I don't always respond immediately with prayer. When we were in Burma one time, there were two teams in, the, in a van, and we were coming back from the mission field. And as we're coming up to this busy intersection, a cop stopped us. And my heart sank. I started panicking. I was like, oh, my gosh, are we going to get arrested? The team leader, praise God for him, sitting next to me, says, just starts praying out loud. Just immediately, his first response was praying. The reason they stopped us, they had a calendar they wanted to sell us. And if we didn't buy their calendar, then we might have problems. So we 
bought their calendar. But it was watching him pray as a first response was such an inspiration to me. I'm like, I am so prayerless. Lord, help me. So that's what, that's what you should do. That The hair trigger in you should lean toward prayer, should lean toward remembering scripture. And how do you do that? Well, you pray and you memorize scripture. That's how you get there. So when we finish First Peter, I'm going to do two weeks on prayer. Do a week on a theology of prayer. How does it work? Why does it work? What is, why would you ask a God who already knows? Um, why would you ask him to do something if he's already made up his mind? That kind of stuff. A theology of prayer. And then the second week will be a practice of prayer. How do you pray? How, how has God called us to pray? So we, we can grow in this. We can do this. But that's how we're going to cast our anxieties on him is by believing his promises and calling out to him. Here's the part that should blow your mind. Why would we do this? Why would we turn to God that way? End of verse 7, because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. God is all-powerful. He is immeasurable. He is beyond time. He knows the end from the beginning. At his word, the universe leapt into existence. Somewhere on the far side of the universe is a galaxy. And somewhere in that galaxy on the far side of the universe is a star. And somewhere deep inside that star is an atom. And God knows exactly what that atom is doing. He is totally aware of that. Now multiply that by a billion stars in that galaxy and a billion galaxies. And God is sovereign over all of this. And guess what? When he looks at you, he cares. The sovereign God of the universe, the one who, who the reason the universe holds together is because God wants it to. And when he looks at you, he says, I care for this person. That, that is mind-blowing. This is hard to grasp how huge God is and yet how personal he is. This is why this, this promise is so tender and so precious and so personal. is because it's not because God has um, wound you up and put you as a cog in the machine. It's he looks and he goes, I care for you. I'm concerned about this one person on the planet Earth. We can't even get an analogy. I can't even get close to making an analogy. It would be, this is going to fail, right? You go in your backyard and you see an anthill, and there's one ant, and you care about that one particular ant. That doesn't even work. We didn't create the ants. We're not expansive beyond the ants. This God who cares is like that. He is so powerful, so all-knowing, so all over everything, and yet he looks at you individually by name, and he says, I care about you. I, I'm concerned for your well-being. Can you humble yourself under a mighty right arm like that? Someone who cares for you? My boss, Kathleen, I, I jokingly say I would march off a cliff if she told me to. Why? Because she was such a good boss, she cared about her people so much that I knew if she said it, it was because she had her best interest in mind. I worked for people like that in the Air Force. We would jokingly say, you know, I'd, I'd walk in front of a tank for this guy because you knew this boss cared for you. And then there were bosses you had where you go, I would not, I barely will do what they're asking me to do because they don't have my best interest in mind, they have theirs. So if this human being can fill that role, how much this God, how much this magnificent, loving God, and how do we know this? How can we trust in this? Because he sent Jesus for us. That's how much he cares for you. The eternal God, the Trinity, sent the Son to die for you because he cares for you. That's how much he cares. The Holy Spirit then, after Jesus ascends to heaven, he, the Holy Spirit comes and seals you, indwells you, sanctifies you. 
Why? Because God cares for you. Because he loves you. He's concerned about you. He doesn't want you to be left alone like sheep wandering all over the place. He sends his spirit to seal you. He saved us into a church of other believers that he cares for. He's given gifts to us. He's, he's equipped us to serve and to help each other. Why? Because he cares for you. He actually loves you. This is great news. So look through that window of scripture. Look at God, especially, I love that we're doing the Psalms. I love that we're, we're reading the Psalms together. Look through the Psalms, through David's life, through Asaph's experience, through Moses' perspective. Look through that mirror, or look through that window to God's grandeur and see how he's been doing this since the beginning of time. Humble yourself under his mighty right arm. So that is the promise. That is the promise, the, the, the thing that we can hang on to. Now, like I said, Peter is being extraordinarily realistic in this letter. He is not being Pollyanna-ish. It's all going to work out. It's going to be good. Don't worry about it. And so where he goes next is the resistance that we have to have. So in verse 8, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why do we need to be sober-minded and watchful? If, God, if we're under God's mighty right arm, if we're under his strength, under his power, why do we have to be mindful and be watchful? Because you have an adversary. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You have somebody who is arrayed against your soul, somebody who hates you. As God cares for you, Satan doesn't care for you. This adversary wants to crush you. One of the things that, the, that, devil, that makes the devil so frightening to me is that he doesn't give a rip about you. You're the battlefield. You are not the goal. His opponent is God. He wants, to, he wants to undo God's plans. So think about Russia invading Ukraine. Why didn't they just nuke it one end to the other? Because they care about it. They want that territory. They want those, those ports on the Black Sea. They want those, those businesses. They want that country. So they're not just nuking everything. They care. That's what they're interested in is gaining the territory. Your enemy, the devil, doesn't want you. He doesn't care at all about you. And so what's scary is he will trample over you, he will waste you, and he doesn't care because you're not the goal. As long as he can get to you and frustrate God, that's his goal. And that's what makes him so scary. He is a prowling lion. Now, don't think of Lion King when you think of prowling lions. Think of it this way. I went to Yosemite years ago, and I went out to pick up sticks to do marshmallows. And as I'm walking around this open field looking for sticks, I looked up, and this car turned, and its headlights swept this big open field. And about maybe 20, 25 yards in front of me was a black bear. No fence between us, just me and him. And so I just turned around and started walking back. That was terrifying because this animal was standing right there, free, unrestrained. Fortunately, it was pretty docile. Another time, I've told this story before, riding my bike in the desert out at Edwards, I turned a corner, and I'm standing in the middle of this path is a coyote looking down and panting and kind of looking at me sideways. And I'm like, this is not a well critter. There is something wrong with this thing. And I took off going the other way. Now, if I heard paws coming after me, I don't know what I would have done. It was that, that, that free animal, that beast that's there. So if you're thinking of this prowling lion roaring, 
don't think of, of Nala and Simba. Imagine the last time you were at a zoo if somebody picked you up and threw you over the enclosure into the lion's den, into the lion's uh, area, and there was a big male lion with the mane standing there looking right at you. That's terrifying. That's what our enemy is like. He is prowling around seeking someone to devour. He wants you to be ended because his enemy is God. God cares for you. Satan hates God. Therefore, Satan will attack us to get at God. That's the equation. He doesn't care if he gains us or destroys us. That's not the point. He prowls around like a lion. So how can we face this enemy? How, how can we face this adversary? Well, we need to be sober-minded. We need to realize that this threat is real. And we need to be watchful because his schemes are out there. One other little caveat before we go, how, to re, how do we uh, face this enemy? Our enemies, the way the reformers talked about it is we have three enemies. Satan, the world, and the flesh. So Satan is an active spiritual force arrayed against us wanting to destroy us. The world is the fallen created order, and it would be quite happy if God didn't exist. And so it's pressuring us that way to, to behave as if God doesn't exist. And then the flesh, that's, that's a way of talking about our fallen human nature. Our fallen human nature, our, we haven't been fully redeemed yet. We're waiting for the redemption of our body and set free from sin. Those three things will act against us. It doesn't always have to be Satan. So anytime something bad happens, it could be the world. It could be the flesh. Or it could be Satan. Or it could be all three or a mixture of them. So don't throw everything at Satan and say everything bad happens must come from him. He'd be happy to just sit back and let it go. Or he'd be happy to get in and stir it up and mix it up and make it worse. He's our enemy, but he's not the only enemy that we face. So be, be realistic about what, what the enemies that we face are. So how do we face these enemies? How do, how do we face this, this devil who's prowling around like a lion? Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith. By faith, that's how we resist him. We trust God's promises. We recognize that God's arm is mighty. It is all-powerful. It is able to do as it hopes or as it desires. Satan may be his opponent, but here's the good news. Satan is not a god. Satan is an angel. He's a created being. He is not the equal and opposite of God. He is something that God controls. So though he may prowl around, though he may make a lot of noise, though he may bring hardship, He's not free. He's still under God's dominion, under God's control. So how is it that we resist him by faith? Well, the first thing is, is that doesn't mean that every attack of his is only spiritual or only intellectual. I think the context Peter is talking of is the physical persecution of the church in that time. That is Satan prowling around trying to destroy them. And so how do you resist him by faith if he's arrest, got you arrested and, and, and being tortured in prison? We go back to the promise of God. Humble yourself under God's mighty arm so that at the right time he will exalt you because he cares for you. So as opposition mounts, as the insults grow, as the, the physical oppression maybe comes at you, how do you resist that? How do you fight that? By faith. You hold on to those promises. Lord, I know what's true. 
I know the pressure I'm under, but I know what's true, and I'm going to fight that by faith. That is spiritual, that is emotional, that's intellectual, that's physical. All of it that's arrayed against us, we fight that by faith, by believing the promises that we have. That's how we fight it. That's how we stand with hope in the dispersion. And that's where Peter goes next. He says, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. How is that hopeful? <laughs> I'm suffering, but my brotherhood throughout the world is suffering. Well, because there's more to it than that. Knowing that the same kind of sufferings, what kind of sufferings? Well, he said, if you share in the sufferings of Christ, that's what makes us a brotherhood as we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You're not alone in this. So there's a, there's a brother or a sister in North Korea right now who's been locked in a cell underground and barely fed, can't stand up because they're Christian. And what they need to know is they are not alone. What they need to remember as they're locked up is there are others who believe in Jesus the way I do. Even though I may not see them until glory, I, there, there are more here than me. Knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, we have a brotherhood. It doesn't matter male or female, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, free or enslaved. We have a brotherhood throughout the world that God has redeemed. All of us are humbling ourselves under his mighty right arm. So we know that this experience that we're, we're facing, this opposition, these insults, they're being experienced by others in the same boat. We're not a freak. We're not cut off. We're not doing something wrong. This is what it's going to be like. So verse 10, he says, the promise here, the hope that we have. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There is an end to your suffering. A little while. A little while? There are people who have suffered their entire lives. How can you call that a little while? Little is a comparative term. Isn't it? It's compared to what? Compared to the glory that is to be revealed, which will be eternal, which will last forever. When you compare that to even a lifetime of suffering, you say, that's just a little while. I have an eternity to enjoy the benefits of Jesus Christ through all of that. So after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace that's always so good to hear the God of grace. Our God is a God of grace. It is not works. It is not how good you can be. It is not how much in a line you can be with him. It is his grace, his unearned love for you, his grace, the God of all grace who called you to suffer. Suffering is part of the path. He has called you to his eternal glory, a glory that can't fade, a glory that can never break. It can never wear out. You can never get sick of it. His eternal glory in Christ that's the grace part. What's he going to do? Well, he's going to restore us. Now, does that mean that, that all that we've lost will get back and we'll, we'll, have, we'll get to go back and do our life again? No, the restore, restoration is much bigger than that. It's much more than that. So look at Mark chapter 10. And this is to Peter, by the way. So Peter is, I think this is what he's got in mind. Mark chapter 10. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house 
or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time um, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children with persecution in the age to come eternal life. But many who will be first will be last. So what he's promising us is whatever you've given up to follow Christ, you're going to get more than that, hundredfold. And I don't think it means exactly 100. I had one sister, and now I'm going to have 100 sisters. It's, it's that sense of fullness and overflowing and, and abundance. What we gain is going to be restored. What we gave up to get there is going to be restored to us. So he's going to restore us. He's going to confirm us. That's really important, I think, to doing this by faith, is to be confirmed, to know that in the end it's, it's going to stand true. It will, in the end, Jesus is going to say, yes, you were right for doing that. And here's the verse for it, Mark, or Matthew chapter 10. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So how would you like this to have your confirmation? You get to heaven, you're standing before God, the judgment has come, everything you've done has been laid out, good and bad. God has said, how do you plead? And you say, Jesus. And Jesus says, Father, he's with me. Father, she's mine. And God doesn't say innocent, he says righteous. Everything that we've endured, everything we've put up with will be confirmed in that last moment. He will restore us. He will confirm us. He will strengthen us. He will strengthen our faith, our resolve, and our hope. I get that from Romans chapter 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ, Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known to the nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. To him who is able to strengthen you. How is he able to strengthen you? According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. You are strengthened in faith. That's what he's going to do for you. He's going to um, he's going to restore, he's going to confirm, he's going to strengthen, and then finally, he's going to establish you. You will be immovable by the seal of the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Corinthians 1. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that, when, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So how does he establish you? He establishes you by filling you with his Holy Spirit. God never abandoned you. He never let you go. Even in the suffering, even in the persecution, even in the prison, even in the trials, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's how he establishes you. This is the promise that you hang on to. God, I'm going to humble myself under your mighty right arm because at the right time, you're going to do these things for me. You're going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish me when I need it. That moment when I need it the most, you're going to be there for me. You're going to do that. And so where does this lead Peter to? Where does this, this wonderful truth, this tremendous promise lead him to? Verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Peter is not wishing that God had dominion at this point. What Peter is doing at this point is he is announcing it is right, it is fitting, it is perfect, it is holy, it is how it should be that God have dominion forever and ever. He is announcing that God has this dominion. To him be this. May we all see that, recognize it, and see it for what it is. Amen. Let it be so. This is the doxology of the book. What we're going to see next week is he's going to address himself to a few people. Um, he's going to greet folks, and then that's the end. But this is his doxology, to him be dominion. May he rule the universe as he sees fit. Humble yourself under that God. That's where you want to go. So then you can face your adversary, the devil, through faith. You can have those scriptures that the Holy Spirit gave to us. He wrote these down for us. You can have those great and tremendous promises that God has given us, all handy so that you can stand in that day. And in the end, in glory, when the glory is revealed, will be confirmed. You were right to trust him. You were right to put your hope in him. That is the promise that we have. To that God, be dominion forever. Let him rule the universe, and I, I'm, I'm out of it. I don't want to try to rule it. I will follow where he leads. Lord, to you be the dominion. Let's pray. Lord, to you be dominion. Lord, would you rule this universe? And Lord, as we see evil rising and falling, opposition coming and going, persecution showing up and fading, Lord, we know these are all things that have happened by your hand. They, none of this has gotten past you. There's not one piece of an atom, one, one little bit of an atom that is not under your sovereign control. It all happens as you intend it to. And so, Lord, in the middle of all this, as we're struggling, as we're wrestling, as we're facing opposition, as we're facing success, which can be seductive in itself, Lord, would you help us to be humble? under your mighty right arm, under your care, under your provision, because you care for us. Lord, we look for the day when the, our adversary, the devil, will not only be bound, but ultimately cast into the lake of fire and tormented forever. That his opposition will register on his head. And Lord, it will be used to show the purity of the saints because it's under your right hand. Lord, be glorified in your church, we pray. Amen.